Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. What are we talking about today? I forgot. Well, we're concerned that uh, that our friend Mr. Lefsetz, uh has concerns also about there being no more hits. And you know what? I think he put it pretty succinctly. He's right. He's right. There. I mean, I, I, again, we've been discussing uh, trying to figure out the unified, <laughs> generalized theory, and this has become part of it. And it's something I hadn't really noticed, but I've been, but I've been seeing evidence of it. And you know, we we talk about it as like new music is splintered. It's hard to like get it out of the same faucet the way we used to get it off the radio and MTV, and then, and that was it, and it was very concentrated. But Left Sets points out that. You, there are no more hits. Radio, uh, there are no radio hits. Uh, it's amazing. Well, there's no hit makers. I think that's what right. it comes to. Yeah. The hit makers are so random these days. And he talks about how TikTok can make something go viral. And we've discussed that recently. One of the examples, so we're going to link to Bob Lefset's Lefset's letter. The title of this one is called The Billboard Article because you're supposed to know what it's about. And he references an article in Billboard, too many songs, not enough hits. Pop music is struggling to create new stars. I won't read the rest of the headline of the article. It's quite long. He points out something that Beyonce had a new album that came out and everyone was saying how great it was. And then he says, check the Spotify top 50. There's not a single Beyonce song, not one. And, you know, if I think about... Films, right? Films used to be in cinemas for months. And then when we got to VHS and cable, they had shorter lives. Now, uh, I saw a review for a new film. It's going to be in cinemas for a week and then it's on Netflix. Or another new film, it's in cinemas now. You better catch it quickly because it's not going to last. Or the new King Crimson documentary, which I hope we'll be able to talk about soon, is going to be in cinemas for one showing on the 19th of October, which is before this episode comes out. So it's the sort of the, the windowing, what they used to call it, would be in cinemas for a certain amount of time, then on premium pay TV for a certain amount of time, then available on DVD and then etc. All that's changed. There's no more. It's just totally random. To me, it's, it's really incredible because back in the day, let's take the album Thriller. First of all, it's a huge production. It's a huge production. Just making the record was a huge production. Carefully planned. These kinds of songs. We want this kind of song. We want a crossover song. We want a pop hit. We want, you know, perfectly constructed. Then the marketing team gets in there and says, we're going to release this track. And then a few weeks later, we'll release this track. And of course, this track has a huge movie attached to it. And the thing was in our face for months. And now, like he says, Beyonce, one of the most talented modern musicians, artists that we have puts out a record and it just falls off the cliff because people want the next TikTok. They just can't wait. The record companies have lost control over how they can manage uh, listening because there's no radio listening. They can't, you know, they used to work hand in hand with the radio stations. We're going to release this single and that single. And that doesn't work that way anymore. People hear the record whenever they want. 
If they decide they don't care for it, they don't listen to it anymore. And the best that an artist nowadays can hope for, and I think this is what I came with, this is what I came away with from this album. They can only hope to become part of the firmament, firmament of catalog music. They can only pray that please in 10 years still be playing my music, even if it's just a little, because there's no way they're going to make a living if they can't get these mega hits out of the bo- uh, straight out the straight out of the gate. Lefsit says, in the old paradigm, they would have sold millions of albums immediately based on the mania. But today, that paradigm is dead. Today, it's all about streaming longevity, and there is none with Beyonce. That's right. That's kind of weird, because if she is that popular, is she doing the Super Bowl halftime this year? No. Uh, no. Uh, I, I forgot, actually, who's doing it, but it's that's Taylor an interesting Swift? thing, too. What? Taylor Swift? Wait, no. let's... Let's find who's doing the Super Bowl halftime. It's uh, to... it's someone who hasn't been performing in a while. I think R- Rihanna or something like that. Rihanna. Okay. Yeah. Oh, international icon, entrepreneur, and philanthropist Rihanna. Okay. The, the thing about Beyonce is she's extremely popular, well-known, iconic, I would say. I don't like her music, but it's just not for me. But, you know, she's done these really creative photo shoots. She has a brand image. And yet... If she's not, if people aren't listening to her music on streaming. What good is it? What? Yeah. What is, where is the money coming from? I assume she's performing concerts and we know that concerts make a lot of money these days. Unlike back in the day, us old people, you'd pay seven fifty to go to a concert and maybe you'd buy the album because you liked it because the concert was promoting the album. The concert would promote the album by the actual performance, by the interviews that the band would give to the FM radio, and they would make a thing out of it in each local market. And that doesn't happen anymore. And so is it the concerts that are making money? Is it rights for other things being in advertisements or, you know, this is a huge market. I, I saw a thing on Twitter last week and I retweeted it about how I really appreciate musicians doing uh, with broad revenue streams. It's Robert Fripp, who for 80 pounds will record a personalized video message for you. Yeah. And there, there is this, there are the number of these companies that do this. Uh, funnily, when I looked on this particular service, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called Celebrity Video Messages. When I looked up all the musicians, the majority of them were musicians who look like someone, like someone who looks like Elvis or tribute musicians, someone who sounds like someone else. It's really weird. There are very few actual musicians. I don't know why Fripp picked this particular one of the many companies, but this is part of the revenue stream because where else is the money coming from? You're not getting that royalty check from your record label anymore. You still have to have a thousand fans to keep you floating with their, you know, with they have to adore you so much that every year they'll give you a little bit of money for something, whether it's a, you know, a Christmas greeting or a record or, or a concert or a speech as Robert Fripp was attempting to do recently. It's fascinating to me that is, is Beyonce for real then? If she puts out an album and nobody listens to it, is Beyonce... Well, you know what I'm saying is like, is is all the hype real or is it marketing? Because back in the day, she's exactly the sort of artist that would benefit from extreme, you know, marketing. You'd have a marketing company working with you, but she puts a record out and no one listens to it. And not that I'm not trying to diss Beyonce. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a great record. But if it's not getting if it's not getting any traction, 
then is Beyonce not who she says she is? Well, if I look at the Billboard chart, today's October 17th, so this changes. She's got a track at number 36 called Cuff It. She's got one at number 50 called Break My Soul. Now, these tracks are based on two things. They're based on album sales and album equivalent something, where a certain number of thousands of streams is the equivalent of an album, right? So if she's only got two on the Billboard Hot 100, and that's not up with a bullet up at the top there, you know, at the top, you've got Steve Lacey, Sam Smith, Harry Styles, Post Malone, you know, artists I've actually heard of, other than if you go down, I've never heard of half of them. The, the point is that somehow Billboard thinks she's selling well, but if no one's listening to it on the streaming services, then is it really selling well? Uh, now, Lefsit says about the Billboard album chart, he says, ignore it completely. It doesn't reflect reality. Streams are king. And on that chart, physical and files mean more. But even worse, acts release vinyl to bump their numbers and everywhere you see their number one, but not in the eyes and ears of the public. So it's a sort of sleight of hand here that if you seem to be in the top 10 or top 50, as Beyonce's case, but you're not really in the top 50, is it anything more than... I don't know, the former president having a fake Time magazine cover with his picture on it? Right. It's it's it seems like it's a it's a it's a dance. It's a fake thing. It doesn't it's artificial. The the whole billboard, the whole idea of there being popular music is artificial. This the 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 amount of listens based on streams has always been suspicious to me. It's like what the heck does that even mean? If I stream it and I'm not in the room listening to it, does that does it still count as a stream? I mean, you know when I of bought course. a record. Yeah. When I bought a record, you knew I had the object. The number of times I listened to the record wasn't important. Album sales, you could count that. But how do you count a stream? It's, it's Yes, but as I've said before, perhaps today's model is more realistic. Why are we paying for an album if we find we don't like it and we never listen to it? This, this is always a question of cultural stuff. You buy a book, if you don't like it, well, you still have the book. Maybe you can return it if it's really bad, but you can't return your ticket to a film if you walk out after 15 minutes because it's no good. So maybe this sort of model based on what we're actually listening to is realistic, which means this leads to the atomization of artists and genres and music in general. And the fact that you won't, as the Billboard article says, too many songs, not enough hits. People are listening to more music. They're listening to a lot more music, but they're just not all listening to the same thing. And right. I, I think we've kind of said this a dozen times over the years in this podcast. Uh, you know, the fact that back in the day, you only had one FM radio station in your, your, your city or your market. You had a couple of AM stations. You didn't have a lot of choice. It was dictated to you what you heard, unless you had a college station where you could phone in and make requests. But even then, but even then, it was a limited amount and it was a, an amount of music that a, a maven could handle. You could, you know, you could keep up with the new releases. You could read the magazines. You could, you know, get the radio station. You could listen to esoteric radio stations. I knew guys that went to different towns and listened to radio stations in other towns just to stay up to date on what the new music was. Um, you could do it. Now you can't. Another quote from the Lefsitz letter, the rise of TikTok has complicated matters too. The platform has become a hit maker, but it's an unpredictable marketing tool, less susceptible to manipulation and less responsive to star power than other platforms. 
Engineering a viral moment is akin to walking into a corner store and emerging with a winning lottery ticket. It all, it's, it's all just random. It's, it's just, it just, we, no one has control. And that's, I think that's the point of Lefsit. The, the music industry as such, which is record labels, promoters, et cetera, had control before. They have no more control and they're flailing because what good are they if they can't control anything? Well, I think then the people who do have control are the influencers on TikTok and places like that where they say, hey, look at this. It's really cool. And it's really cool for two or three days. And then two or three days later, people have completely forgotten it because they got another dopamine shot from some other thing that's really cool. <laughs> so it's like these things just just come and go really quickly. Our attention spans and let's face it, since MTV, people's attention spans have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that has a lot to do with it. That's why there isn't a lot of longevity with, with albums. There's no, you can't keep people's interest with sustaining a, a, a singles releases from an album over several months. What you said is interesting because it makes me think of books. Now, I read a lot of books. I'm interested in literature. I keep up on literature. And I don't think this year was the first time I noticed it, but when I saw like a list of novels coming out in the fall, maybe in August or September, out of a hundred or so novels, I only recognized maybe a dozen of the authors. Now, five or 10 years ago, I would have recognized easily half. I worked in a bookstore when I was in France in the 1990s. So I was up to date on those authors there then, including international authors who came in translation. And I've always kind of followed which are the big literary authors. And more and more, I just don't know who these authors are. Now, on the one hand, it's a very good thing because a lot of the authors whose names I don't know are names that do not sound like they are American or British. They are names that sound like they're Asian or African. And we're getting a, a, a greater number of diverse voices in literature. That's for sure. But on the other hand, I'm not going to take a chance on an author I've never read buying a novel that cost, I don't know, 10 or 15 pounds or 20 bucks in the States, because you can't just stream a chapter and see if you like it. I mean, you can read the beginning of something on, on a Kindle or whatever, but it's not quite... The commitment to a novel is obviously different than commitment to music, which, you know, it takes 6, 8, 12, 24 hours to read a novel, whereas music, an album, is an hour. But what about the creators? The creation is about the same. And, you know, it can take a year or two to, to write a novel. It can take a year or two to make an album. I guess it could take three weeks to make an album, too. But um, the, the interesting thing is, is that are you saying there are no hit makers in literature either anymore? I think it's I know. I think it's similar that the big names that have been around for a couple of decades are the ones who are selling really well. Um, Stephen King has a new novel out. Over here, Ian McEwan, who won the Booker Prize and who wrote Atonement, which was a very popular film. He has a new novel out. These things are selling well. I think it's the same thing as in the music industry, that there are so many people out there and it's harder. It's it's atomized. Now, it's a little bit different publishing because it is so much more expensive to publish a printed book. So you still have the gatekeepers that are publishers, but so many people are publishing independently that... It kind of balances. Another Lefsitz quote here, in truth, most people cut off huge swaths of media. They haven't heard or seen or read it, and it does not bother them at all. They've found what appeals to them, and that's enough. And hmm. I think that's probably the takeaway to this and to this whole debate. Mo we keep saying music as wallpaper. Most people don't care what they listen to. They just want something on to keep away that 
existential emptiness that is silence. Well, uh, okay, yes, I, I I agree with that. I think you know people like what they know and they know what they like, and that's just it's always been that way. I, I still think it's very interesting that there's a diversity and a, and a splintering of where you get your reading material, where you get your listening material, and that the people who provide it seem to have lost control of it um, in both situations. And I think that that's really interesting in that there's a now a middle group of people, the influencers, or people like you and I who go, I know what I like, and I'm just going to listen to that. Um, when Stephen King puts a new book out, of course it's going to sell well. He's got a great track record. He's got a lot of older readers who, you know, let's face it, a lot of older people are, 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 are sustaining a lot of these older artists and authors and people like that. You know, they, they are the committed 1,000 fans, and they'll stick with them. Um, but I think trying to, as Lefsitz points out, trying to, tr trying to get into that firmament is, is very difficult. And, and, and that's, that's going to be the challenge, because if there aren't going to be hits, then you've really got to hope that at least a few people keep, keep playing your music and, and keep it vital and keep it, keep it moving. Because uh, otherwise, I don't know what, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't think. I mean, I don't think anything – we're just in a direction, and it's technology that's led us there. I don't think it's going to change yeah. too much. I was just thinking about movies for a second where we do have gatekeepers like Netflix and HBO and Amazon yes. and all that. They are gatekeepers, but uh, they're not gatekeepers that select things. They're gatekeepers that throw everything at you to try and keep you subscribing, and there's no attempt to create quality content for you. There was an article in The Guardian today about how bad the Amazon Lord of the Rings series is. Now, I grew up reading Lord of the Rings, and I've seen the movies, and I really liked them. And I watched – I think my partner and I watched the first half hour of the first episode of the Amazon thing, and it was terrible. The acting was bad. It was just terrible. And that's what The Guardian article said. And I think Amazon spent $250 million on this series. and I don't think they care that much. It's not about the final product. It's about promoting right. the product. It's about saying, we have this, we have this, we have this, subscribe. You'll miss out. You'll miss out if you don't. And then you get it and you go, well, I got it. I got it. What are you going to do, cancel? They, they obviously know it's harder to cancel than it is to subscribe. But they make it so easy to subscribe. I see Amazon Prime as different because the main reason I have Prime is because I live in a rural area and I get next day delivery for most things. So that's a little bit different for me. The videos are sort of a lanyap, even though it, my Amazon Prime subscription just dropped today at 95 pounds, which is up from 75, I think, last time. But Netflix, mm -hmm. I subscribe for a month and I cancel for three months because there's nothing good. I've been subscribing to Apple TV Plus annually. And this year I'll stop my annual subscription and go monthly. It's not worth five bucks a month for Apple TV Plus. When they have something that's worth, I'll wait till the series is all there after all the episodes are there and I'll subscribe for a month and I'll watch it and that's it. I think I've mentioned to you that I just don't watch television anymore. I just, I don't yeah. think the quality is as good as some of the older things. I go back and watch older things that I enjoy, but I, I still have yet to find anything that's that's really substantive and artistic. And I, geez, I hope it's not the, I don't hear that in music. I mean, I hear a lot of new music that is yeah. really good yeah. and really done well, and, and, and there's still a commitment to artistry. 
But, you know, when Netflix and Apple TV make a make a TV show, I, I can't be I don't feel like I'm getting guaranteed quality uh, at all. Interesting. You said artistry, because here's another quote from Lefsitz. Music is a business. People like to think of it as art, but that's not how the major labels see it. And right. you can't be a musician if you're not making a living from it. You can right. you can be a writer writing a novel if you're a university professor and you've got three months off in the summer and you've got plenty of time, you can do that. And in fact, a lot of these diverse names that I see in fiction are people who are professors at university, often professors of creative writing, and so they've got a cushion because advances for first novels these days are pitiful. I've made more in advances for print computer books, which I haven't done any in 20 years, than most people get for advances for first novels these days. We do another podcast for, for Scrivener, uh, and we uh, you interview writers. And most of the writers are either professional writers 24 hours a day, or they've got a great side job. And, and that's great. Musicians, though, they've got to live like a minstrel. They've got to t go where the money is. They've got, they've got to. Otherwise, you can't make a living unless you're, you're making money. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> well, with musicians, it's different because you have to perform. Yeah. Uh, well, not every musician performs, but if you do want to perform, it's generally in the evenings and on the weekends. And it's not easy to have another job that coincides with that. I mean, a lot of people did it. This is how all the bands started out in the early days. They had day jobs. They performed, you know, on Friday night and Saturday night. But you can't make a career of that. I, I want to just circle back to something you said earlier about having a thousand fans, because on the King Crimson website, they have a thing called the 1000 Club. And they mentioned it's based on Kevin Kelly's idea of having a thousand true fans that can support a band or artist. And you pay a hundred bucks a year and you get up to $500 in free downloads. You get preferential access to concerts. There won't be any more concerts, but it is a way for the super fans to say, Right. I'm a fan. Worth noting that they limit it to a thousand people and you can still join. So they don't have a thousand people paying. There are more or less. There are still spaces available. Oh, there are obviously fewer because there are spaces available. They say they're going to limit it to one thousand. I see. So it's not they're not. OK, it's not a joke. They just still have. No, no, no. It's not a joke. I haven't gotten They've, to a thousand yet. It's not like anybody. Can, right. right. OK. Now, maybe at some point they did. But because they say membership is strictly limited to exactly 1,000 members. It's like a team. Once it is full, <laughs> <laughs> once it is full, there will be a waiting list, and any new members can only join if someone chooses to leave. See, that sounds like something from Sherlock Holmes. It's not like I said a tontine, or it's like you know, as soon as one of the members passes away, well, we got room for somebody because that's evident. I guarantee you, that's how there's a space in in the King Crimson uh, 1,000 group because you have yes. to. You're not gonna. Who would quit? You'd have to shuffle off. So. Well, but the point is that there are spaces and you can join today if you want. I'll link in the show notes if you want to join the King Crimson 1000 Club. Why not? Sure. I kind of think that we're just rehashing stuff that we've talked about a lot. But I think this Lefsit letter is worth reading for anyone who is interested in this concept because he does crystallize a lot. Now, Lefsitz writes in this sort of stream of consciousness way, these emails that are often 2,000 words long. So it can be a bit of a slog, but he's been in the industry since forever and he knows a lot of people. And I think he's one of the more perceptive voices who is not beholden to major labels and to marketing. He's pretty frank with his criticisms. Yeah, he's very refreshing. And he, a lot of the times it does sound like he's yelling at clouds, but other times... <laughs> In this particular article, 
he 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 plateaued it for me. He definitely uh, crystallized the, as you said, uh, the the whole argument of, you know, there are no hits, and I what who cares? <laughs> who cares? There are no hits, really. I mean, yeah, I like the music I listen to. Well, the music industry cares. The musicians care because for a lot of musicians, uh, you know, you you started a band in the '70s for two reasons: one to get girls, and the other to make you know, lots of money because they were seeing in the seventies, all the bands with their private jets and doing these concerts and trashing hotel rooms and all this, the mythology of the rock star. And that's gone. And, and in fact, musicians today are more like novelists who don't make much money, who have to have a second job, who aren't that respected anymore in the broader scheme of things. I mean, to write a novel that's going to sell movie rights to make you lots of money, you know, that's a real crapshoot. I think, you know, if you're a musician and you got to be a musician, then more power to you. And, and some people just feel that way. It's like, I've got to play music. And there's no way around it. They can't avoid playing music. It's what they have to do. And they have to create. I know the feeling. You know the feeling. There's always going to be great music, but it's not going to get corralled and marketed the way it was in the old days. Yep. Okay, should we do next tracks? Yeah, I was just going to ask, what music are you listening to? I got the new Brian Eno record. It's called Forever and Ever No More, and that's all in one word. That's one very long word. It's a fascinating record. I was listening to it first on Apple Music, and I tweeted that I listened to it so many times on Saturday that Brian Eno probably made a nickel from it. Then I got the Blu-ray with the Dolby Atmos mix. Now, the Dolby Atmos mix is available on Apple Music, but there was, I believe it's a limited Blu-ray with the Dolby Atmos in high-resolution whatever. And I went up to my TV room, which has now been immersified for music. And it's a fascinating experience because even before I listened to the Atmos mix, I was thinking this is a record composed for Dolby Atmos. You can tell the lushness and the, the complexity of the arrangements. You can tell that it's just designed to have the sound around you. It was, as Chris Conacher likes to say, immersive. It was really interesting. And after listening to it a couple of times, I was thinking, how many more times am I going to listen to this? I'll listen to it on my stereo easily, but if I have to go to the room where I've got the Dolby Atmos set up now, I can listen to on Apple Music with my AirPods Pro, which I've got on now, which do surround sound. It's really interesting, but you've got to have a dedicated space like Chris Conacher. I'll link to an article on his website, Audiophile Style, showing his listening room in the attic of his house, which is... I mean, it, it looks like it should be in some, you know, home decoration magazine or something. Star Wars. <laughs> that too, yes. Yes, it looks like one of those Star Wars, the hallways <laughs> where the Imperial stormtroopers come running down. Yeah. In any case, this is a really good album. I recommend listening to it in any format. I think the Atmos is definitely a plus, but I, I think the Blu-ray doesn't offer that much. Now, it does offer an image on the screen that changes, kind of a generative image, but there's nothing else. There's no extras in it that there's... Is it generative? Well, the, the colors and everything change as it goes on. So something's going on. It could just be a, a video that is just playing through the, the back. I haven't ripped the, the Blu-ray to see what's inside. It does make changes, though, as it goes on. Wonderful record. Check it out on whatever streaming service you have or buy the CD or buy the clear vinyl LP or buy the black vinyl LP or buy the, buy the Blu-ray or get the one with the exclusive print or get the one with the exclusive postcards. I'm not usually the sort of person that gets maudlin when aging rock stars pass away because I figure, well, 
it's natural. And generally speaking, they haven't really done anything new in quite some time. But still, it can be sad. Well, in this particular case, I was maudlin. I was sad. I was emotionally sad to hear that Christine McVie had died. And I've been following Christine McVie for a long time. She was started in Chicken Shack, which was a R&B, British R&B band. She put out a, a solo album called the Christine Perfect album because that was her name, Christine Perfect. And then she was asked to join Fleetwood Mac, and then that's when that transitioning stuff started to happen for years. Fleetwood Mac was trying to transition from blues into pop into something different. And, of course, they ended up where they ended up and sounding great and being famous and being popular around the world and all that stuff. But being one of the, for lack of a better expression, older members of Fleetwood Mac, I think she still kept some of that blues R&B stuff happening. You know, her songs, which are great, and they're all the popular ones, they're actually pretty simple. And all it would take is a, is a great producer to turn them into the songs that they became. And that's what, what happened. Um, she really did write great songs. But anyway, I want to go back to her first album, her, fir her personal, uh, first solo album. It was called The Christine Perfect Album. And then when she joined Fleetwood Mac, they changed the name to The Legendary Christine Perfect Album. And then when Fleetwood Mac became incredibly big, they changed it again to the legendary Christine Perfect album, Christine McVie. And that's on big letters. It's a, it's a mix of, I would say, British R&B that was popular at the time, that sort of sound. Um, sort of like poppy, folky stuff. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, 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 if you're a, a completist for Fleetwood Mac, you certainly know about it and want to hear it. I've always thought of it as a pretty good record. I'm very surprised that it didn't do as well as it did. It had a couple of songs on it that I'm familiar with. But I'm going to listen to the whole album this time and, and really figure out what Christine was thinking about back then. The legendary Christine Perfect album is my next track. This was episode number 244 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.